0: I got nothing but two dancing shoes and my friends with me. Actually, all I have right now is first name James, the first name in podcasting, engineer twiddling the thumbs on the other side of this glass wall, this great divide. Welcome to this, the Red Bulletin podcast. I'm your host, Andreas Georgis. We're talking to top performers in the worlds of culture, sports, music, innovation. We're trying to understand the hurdles that they overcome, the, the tools and the tricks that help make them better. Today's guests are uh, two fascinating individuals. They're the founders. It's, by the way, the first time we've done two guests at the same time. Uh, they are the founders of Afropunk. Afropunk is, well, it's a movement. It's a cultural movement. It's a festival circuit. It's an art circuit. It's a fashion show. But uh, what it really began as, what it continues to be, is a community, an inclusive community for members of the LGBT community uh, for members of the African-American and black community who felt uh, misrepresented or feel misrepresented by uh, the, characteriz- the characterization of them as uh, being solely into hip-hop and R&B uh, began uh, from a documentary about um, uh, African-American fans of punk music and has grown to include all kinds of uh, uh, different types of music genres as well they really don't discriminate in any way shape or form our guests today are matthew morgan and jocelyn cooper two really remarkable individuals jocelyn hails from a long line of um civil rights activists in brooklyn her parents were responsible for uh suing to uh successfully redistrict um, Brooklyn uh, to allow the first African-American woman to be elected to Congress. She then made her way into the music industry and uh, had a very successful career at Universal Music, uh, discovering groups like Cash Money, which brought us the hip-hop artist Little Wayne, until she became disillusioned and misre- felt uh, quite misrepresented in that industry and decided to go in a different direction. She found Matthew. Matthew is a wonderful character, a wonderful person, a uh, true London hustler. He started his first business at the age of 15. He tells a wonderful story of taking the ferry as a teenager to France just to pick up the freshest new kicks and freshest new pairs of jeans not available in England. Together they began or they, they continued this movement that has grown into music festivals in Atlanta and Paris in London and, of course, in Brooklyn, where they all began. Um, I highly recommend you Google Afropunk just to get an idea of the fashion-forward nature of these gatherings, of these events, uh, some of the freshest outfits you'll ever see, uh, some things that I'm sure Prada and Dior are checking out right now uh, and putting into their lookbooks for 2018. Um it's a full hour of interesting anecdotes, great conversation about, you know, misrepresentation about their responsibility at the head of this movement and about growing a community and maintaining authenticity and community. So without further ado, here's Afropunk. Matthew and I were talking while you were in the other room about your roots in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. How far back do you go in Brooklyn, Jocelyn? Does your family go back in Brooklyn?
1: Well, I go back in New York for generations. My father was the first of his siblings to be born in Brooklyn. And he was actually born in the house that we live in, our TV room. Um, which is <laughs>
2: cupboard, kind of
1: interesting. No, that was his room. Oh, was his, his room, his bedroom was the the cupboard. He was like okay. Harry Potter. I tell
2: people he was born in the cupboard. No, I find that way more interesting.
1: the The, the bedroom was actually the the TV room. Um, but uh, yeah, we have a a long history in New York, um, and my father was and and my grandparents um, were big champions in Brooklyn. In um, what sense? Well, my father was very politically, both my mother and my father were very politically active in Brooklyn. Um, my father ran for state senator. He used to work for a company called Schaefer Brewing Company, which was a really cool beer company um, in in Brooklyn. And he was the community affairs director. And he actually um, started a, a series of concerts and community, yeah. Which is interesting. He well, produced a...
0: Apple not falling far from trees No, and that sort of it was thing. Very
1: inspiring, my yeah. dad. Um and then uh geared to
0: who? I mean, what was the what was the purpose of the concert series? The
1: the concert series was just to bring art to the community in the same way that AfroPunk does. Um and to enrich um people of color and just people in general in Brooklyn. Um and Manhattan. He actually uh produced a, Worked and sponsored uh, some of the Central Park series there. I remember seeing everyone from Diana Ross to the Jacksons to Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells to just just amazing shows.
0: We're talking sixties, seventies, New York. Mm,
1: well, I was born in the sixties, so this was in the in the seventies, um, into the late seventies and and eighties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then my father started a newspaper. Um, in Brooklyn, left Schaefer, and um, he uh, filed a lawsuit that changed um, the the zoning in Brooklyn so that Shirley Chisholm could could get elected. So they were very the first African American f- congress first African American congresswoman. So my parents were very politically um, involved and engaged and focused on um, making black people's lives much
0: better. In their community, must have been interesting dinner table conversations. It was very
1: political. I grew up in a. (laughs) (laughs) It was kind of like now. (laughs) Did you have to conversation? Did you
0: have to defend your point at a young age? Did you have to take part?
1: Oh, very much so. Uh Yeah, I mean, you. My opinions were welcome. My parents were into. wanting to know what my friends and what we were thinking about what was going on in the world and and uh they were interested in our music they were sort of interested in everything that was happening in our lives and Uh, but they were also you know we also you know my parents took us to the democratic national um conferences all my friends like hey let's go and hang out and do this it's kind of <laughs> was that a, an interesting childhood
0: was that fun
1: it was fun
0: it was fun oh. and, and not just you looking back saying i really learned something from that it was fun it was at that time it was
1: you know it, it was it was fun and it was also it, there were a lot of times where you know my parents were like hey look you know we only have one ticket um And I remember going to the premiere of Lady Sings the Blues, as an example, which is a Diana Ross film that Barry Gordy produced. Um, And I was the only kid at the premiere. And I had a blast. And I was tired. And my parents were like, just, you know, go to sleep at the table, sit there underneath the table while we sit and we have a conversation. So that was sort of my life. Yeah. Um, And having you know, being the kid uh, amongst adults, adults having conversation and, and my opinion was welcome. Right. Right. So that was fun. Uh, and and being exposed a f- to
0: a lot of culture. Uh, and a feeling of inclusion Great. at an early age. Very much. Which so. probably very much guided your direction that, that you eventually took.
1: You know, I didn't I didn't put all of the pieces together until I met Matthew. And didn't understand how much of an influence um, my parents life life's work had has influenced um, our life's work yeah really yeah. and also the way that that you know my parents were truly partners um, in in life my mother didn't work in my father's business but she devoted herself after work you know she going to parties and going to events um for my mother was working right she was networking um and it's the way that i have looked at life too (laughs) so uh that has has been a real um has had an impact because matthew and i are partner partners and that's fun right you know it's nice to sort of work and and live together
0: is there Was there an expectation that was a nice little smile they just shared for those of you who couldn't see it? You mean None they can't of, see us? What's that?
2: You mean they can't see us?
0: No, we, I didn't hit record on oh, that okay. <laughs> that highly sophisticated piece <laughs> of uh, video technology sitting hey, there. That's uh, precariously why I, I, cool. I turned
2: this way for no reason. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe is back to the camera. Was there,
0: was there a level of expectation? Did you feel uh, that you had to... I'm not saying when you were younger, I'm saying as you started figuring out what you wanted to do in your life um was there kind of this expectation in of yourself that that you wanted to go into something where you wanted to make a difference
1: always i i mean my i i knew from a ver- very early age there were there were two things uh that that media has a real impact on people's lives um and particularly black media has uh, has an impact on people of color's lives I knew that from my father growing up um, and I knew that when you reach the masses that you can you can do some, some good um, and I always wanted to combine the two um, and I knew that my sister gave me some amazing advice when I was little she was like do something that you love no matter what you love if you love paper you know make paper or print paper or make cards or do something, you know, with paper. I didn't love paper. I love music. I love music and I love cooking. And I decided early on that um, cooking was my art and I didn't want anybody to have to fuck with my art <laughs> and I didn't want to have to do it every day um, and that I love music so much that, that I wanted to figure out a path in that world um and when um when i first started in the music business right after college you know i worked in a recording studio and then i was an assistant at a record company and then it
0: was still booming by the way the the music business was booming at that (laughs) point yeah yeah was it lavish
1: it well not as lavish as you know some of my mentors uh said that it was they were like we had we were doing cocaine and smoking, and we, our expense accounts were crazy. We were flying around in private jets. We didn't have any of that. Um, <laughs> there was no cocaine in the office. <laughs> right. Um, although uh, this guy who he actually works in, a, he, he lives in L.A., this guy that I did work with, he used to smoke a joint every night right. in his office and listen to music, and that was really cool. Yeah. But that was after everyone had gone, apparently before I – before I entered the music business, that was just was was happening at two o'clock in the afternoon. So <laughs> I missed that bit. Uh, but, but what uh, what did
0: you want to... What kind of? How was the table set for you when you when you worked uh, when you got into the industry? What did you think you could achieve with it? What did you want to go into there wanting to achieve?
1: You know, I, I started in music publishing, and I loved I loved working with songwriters, um, and the. I love that they have the ability to give people the words and, and, and a feeling that um, people, many people don't have to express what they are feeling in their daily lives and, 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 and outside of themselves. I loved the ability that songwriters have, you know, the craft of writing a beautiful song that expresses something that moves people in a direction or, you know, if you're, you're sad and you can sit and you can listen, can uplift you. I love that. Um, And I knew that that could have a massive impact. And then when I, you know, I never left music publishing, but I, uh, stopped running my company and then started working at Universal as an A&R person. I knew how much influence artists had. Um, and, and I wanted to be able to help artists to see that they not only through their art could make a difference, but they could politically make a difference. Um, and that I could also help them with, you know, like cash money as an example, help them economically get to a place where they would not have gotten without someone like me being a champion in a record company. How was them. that?
0: That was, uh, talk a little bit about that because you, you essentially signed them to a deal that gave them control over their masters, right? Correct. Um, how popular were you within the record company when that happened?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, um, I was not very popular.
0: But why did you do it then? I mean, you were <sighs> trying to make a career
1: because i came from a you know i came from people that were revolutionaries and that believed in black empowerment and um i saw that as my role quite frankly um to help i, I mean i you know what it was i had privy to seeing deals that 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 a lot of people would never have seen I'm um, head privy to and I knew what other people were getting. And I thought, what the hell? These guys are selling the same amount of records that some of these other labels, indie labels, are coming to us with. Why can't they have the same deal? That's it.
0: Right. They deserve it. Well, obviously because it wasn't standard at the time, <laughs> no. right? So so It
1: was not. Those those deals went to independent company they went to, you know, priority and yeah. you know. The folks at, at major labels were like nah we don't do that and i was like yeah we actually should do that
0: so you're working from the inside so yeah Subversive no i was not pop- from the i was
1: not popular the music was not popular i remember um the 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 head of black music she just did not want to do the deal um i had the actually the the vice chairman of the company was like nah i don't think we should do this and then i had to go to the chairman of the company and say hey look you know these people are fucking with something they shouldn't be fucking with yeah you yeah know? yeah um t- we should do this deal and he was like you're right we should do this deal and i'm gonna go and talk to them and yeah. he did and we did it
0: and it That's, was great and that and uh, the feeling of elation must have been amazing
1: well the feeling of elation was amazing when you know bg's record came out and killed it and <laughs> juvenile's record came out and so four million and then they were like Oh, yeah we yeah. loved this all along this was amazing wow cash money's our favorite there was
0: always a there's also <laughs> a hip-hop artist by the name of um little wayne or oh something. yeah little like wayne cash-
1: oh him <clears throat> yeah you mean he, the he guy got a start with yeah. like uh, you know and then he works with drake
0: and drake yeah Nicki uh, who, Minaj, i believe owns the toronto raptors or something yeah. <laughs> from what i see how old was yeah.
2: wayne when he first came into your office
1: um, actually, he didn't come into the office, but I met him when he was, I think, 12. Yeah, it was really... 12 years old. Yeah, 12. 12.
0: Already a talent 13. then? Yeah, extremely. They were. How did you know that he was a talent? Did one. he drop a verse? Or? You
1: know, they, it was, the Cashman click was a real click, and they rolled with everybody, and they were really serious about it. They, you know, they were, they were on the road, they had a, a tour bus, they, you know, they had a huge dreams and going down to new orleans and and seeing with them and hanging with them you know they 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 carved out their own world um and they had carved a a path that quite frankly universal just you know they had they had a fire and we just you know threw
0: stoked it stoked
1: (laughs) it man um and and helped to blow it up and radio was one of those those the the things that that universal was able to help them to do right when you take those records and you put them on radio and you and you put um uh, a power behind it and then you have international distribution yeah. that changes things
0: so was there it was their plan or change it,
1: things at the time
0: it was their plan it was their sense of intent it was their ambition
1: to rule the world
0: but what else were you looking for as an a and r what else were you looking for in the artists that you came across
1: Oh, I always loved artists that were left of center. And at the time they were, you know, radical thinkers and they were left of center and nothing sounded like them other than, you know, obviously um, No Limit was, was around. But, you know, Cash right. Money took it to a whole nother level. And they also had Manny Fresh. And Manny's ability, Manny didn't sample. Manny was just a genius and a, and a pole. Um in, at, at that label the producer, and when, yeah the producer right? of, of, of all of those records originally and when you have a talent like that in the in the middle of all of it um, then you can create a real movement and a, and a real sound and a, a shift in culture um, and I'd known that from you know working in in publishing and working with D'Angelo and and working with um you know folks in, in my past and if you look at any sort of you know cultural shift you see that there's always some genius producer that's behind it
0: was it about um managing their expectations was it about how was it
1: (laughs) there was no managing their
0: expectations they came
1: in and they they you know i don't know if they expected to sell the number of records that they did so quickly but once they started selling records, there's no managing any of that. They're so how do you guide that? Do. How
0: do you guide it? Or do you do you put up like, you know, I don't yeah. know, do you put up lanes? It's just. Say, hey. I mean, I,
1: they create. I, or did they build a new highway? I mean, how they, they, that... they built. They built a new highway. I mean, right. you, you know, you, you have within record com- at labels, you have structure, and you know, you have deadlines and dates, and and th- they were like, "Fuck that, man! We are delivering the records when we want to deliver them. You guys have to, you know, we, this is the artwork that we want to use. This is the creative that we want to use. They were completely and totally out of the box, and. They we were like, you need to put these records out because we're selling them. You want to make money? Let's do this. And that's it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they had a seat at the table. Today. Oh, definitely. Yeah. which is, From which, day one. Was that rare?
1: To have a seat at the table to have at that, that time? To so have
0: that level of control?
1: You know, at, at that time, there were a whole bunch of gatekeepers. So, yeah, it is very rare. You had to go through all the gatekeepers. Now, you know, those gatekeepers don't exist in that way and did you because feel at
0: that point well because of the digital age the digital right? age and
1: you know, people can go directly to consumers and you know if something catches fire then everybody gets all excited and you can carve your own lane in your own highway
0: so at what point were you like i'm good with this record label stuff uh
1: the truth of it is that um I'm, i won't name the the artist um Maybe people, if I, I talk about the record, we used to have to sit. There, there were two things. <laughs> we used to sit. You know those lovely explicit stickers. Yeah, on records. Great. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, I, I made me want to buy the record. By the way,
1: <laughs> right, which is actually part of the plan. Right, right. Um, we would have to sit in lyric meetings, um, and it was the head of business affairs and the chairman of the company not the chairman of the record company but the like the head of the marketing department and we would have to sit and read lyrics out loud and decide whether um those records would have an explicit sticker or not wow
0: Um,
1: (laughs) and (laughs) i was usually the only person of color in the room the only woman in the room um And when we would have to sit and justify and sort of fight what records had to have an explicit sticker or not, because that also, you know, affected how records were sold and racked and there's a lot that goes into that. Yeah. Um, It was just
0: tough to have to deal with. Really awkward, awkward vibe in that room, I can imagine. Yeah. Had you heard of that, by the way? (laughs) Did you know about that? Oh, yeah. I
2: mean, I've heard Jocelyn...
0: I mean, you've heard Jocelyn, I've obviously. heard Jocelyn talk
2: about it, but in in I didn't, I was never, I mean, I've been in the record business myself for many years, but I never had to sit in meetings and read lyrics, although I would, ours was a little more sinister, because we're British, so we do, it's clandestine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's on some Secret Service stuff. Yeah. You uh, gave us Bond. This isn't we very did. surprising we did. to hear. we did. But we also –
1: there was also an incident where there was a, a, a video that came in um, from a, an artist that had just been signed. And um, the, the artist was signed by – I think it was the head of promotion at the time. And the video had two young black girls pulling – I mean, I say girls, like seven, eight, nine-year-old girls – pulling um, two little boys in uh, a red, you know, wagon. And the girls had on hot pants. And the it w- was supposed to symbolize these girls being hoes and these two boys being pimps. And at that very moment, I was like, I can't do this anymore. My parents will be ashamed of me for... This, yeah, um, and all of the work that my parents had put in and, and sacrificed, and and the money in their lives and mortgaging their house yeah. you know, for <laughs> to try to make the world a better place. This shit is just horrible, and and this will have an impact on our people and and culture. And I just I don't want to do this anymore. And I was like,
0: fire me! Or was it was it from one day to the next? Let me kind go. Of <laughs> Was it from one day to the next? Yeah,
1: it was. And then Afro Man was out, and Afro Man was a really big record. And you had this dude that was, you know, nothing wrong with Afro Man if that's your thing. But Mm. you know, all he was talking about was just getting high all day, and just, just the images and and the music and 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 you know what folks were saying was just it was
0: just too much. How old were you when you left?
1: I can't even remember. I don't even know how old I am now.
2: I can tell you.
0: (laughs) Early, early, early thirties. <laughs> How old was that, Matthew? Was no, it wasn't early
1: thirties. I don't think. It was mid, had to be mid thirties.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Mid
1: thirties. Because,
0: um, I mean, it's, it's tough leaving a career like that. Uh, right. It I was mean, really tough leaving I, the money. I mean, you have conviction and you have money, <laughs> right? You have conviction <laughs> on the other hand, you have it money, was, and it's New York. It
1: uh, was really tough leaving my expense account. I can tell you that. I, that is the thing I missed: being able to travel, it's not leaving your business best friend behind. first. <laughs> it is man. It was so sad. I remember the first time that I walked past business class back to coach. At Oof. the time, I was just like, "Fuck!"
0: I can't fucking. Well, I think the first rule of flying business class is to forget you ever flew business class. Because well, I, I mean, I used one. to fly
1: business and private. That was the thing. I mean, I, when you fly with the chairman of a, yeah. the label, he would fly private. We, we flew in David Geffen's plane once to <laughs> L.A. I was like, this is balling, baby. I
0: like this. Did it have like a rotating bed? or
1: No, I'm not a rotating bed. Just, you know, you get to pick the meal that you want from the restaurant that you want for your lunch oh. and they go get it and bring it on. them. Yeah. Plane. That
0: sounds about right. That's kind of cute. So were you like crazy or something like just to give all that up for your convictions?
1: I think so.
2: <laughs> 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 I think
0: so. Matthew, you, you worked in the music industry as well. Yeah, I did. Uh, is a stylist is yeah, yeah,
2: Look yeah, at you dig in
0: yeah, digging down yeah. um we should say you you've been patiently sitting here, and uh apologies, I just wanted no, to I, I wanted I to listen. drill down i'm sure you've heard your your partner's stories a few times yeah, and I'm, so I'm sure boring. I'm also sure there's no, some really great them. juicy ones she didn't tell me in that
2: recounting, but I mean, anyway, she, she forgets a lot of stuff, people <laughs> have to remind her of things, but it's you know it, it always reminds me it reaffirms. Because we're so very different. And as we unpack my background a little bit, um, our family structures, where we grew up, how we grew up, uh, our are just totally, totally different. But yet there are things that are so important to us that um, that brought us together mm-hmm. and that enable us to do what we do. That when you hear Justin talk about why she left and what she was looking for, even though she didn't know at the time, um, it kind of reaffirms what, what we've been doing and how hard we have struggled right.
0: to right. do what we do. Well, it's it's courage, right? And and it's courage to take that first step and to understand that there's probably something better for you out there. That's And I think that's the hurdle that most people can't overcome.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I don't even know if you really realize that there are better things out there for you because I think both of us have quite idealistic in very different ways but quite idealistic parents and that doesn't always bode well at the end because you know you're left with what are you left with particularly in this country you're judged by your homes and your cars and your material possessions um so it's it's it, it, it can be a slippery so there exactly. wasn't a lot
0: of practical knowledge as
2: to how to acquire
0: those things that you gathered from your parents.
2: Uh no, my I mean my I've been sitting here thinking it's going to be my turn in a minute so what <laughs> the fuck am I going to say but we are we have such a contrast in our family unit. Uh, Jocelyn reminds me often and those that know me will concur um that I was brought up by a pack of wolves. And that means different things at different times. But for the most part, I was left um, to roam freely and explore at a very, very, very early age. I'm one of five. I'm the baby. And at that point, I think you give up by the second one. So by the fifth one, you're kind of like, he'll he'll fend for himself. (laughs) Um, But I was born with an extremely... Rebellious nature and inquisitive nature, um, very different to my siblings. At very very different time, also There's seventies in seventies eighties in London. Uh, second generation, West Indian.
0: Thatcher's England.
2: Thatcher's England. Yeah. Um.
0: What did your parents do, by the way?
2: <laughs> my father was an engineer. My father, interestingly enough. Again, this is, these are the complete contrasts. My dad never went to day school in his life. He is from Guyana, and he couldn't afford to go to school and worked really, really early, as I did. I had my first job when I was ten. I left school when I was thirteen. I've had my own business since I was fifteen, and I've never had a job. And I'm probably unemployable by <laughs> most standards. <laughs> Um, but my mother was a health officer, local council, and my father was an engineer. He taught himself, um, and we're very similar in that regard. Um, my dad's philosophy was, you it doesn't matter what you know, you can just work harder. Don't worry about it, just work harder. Um, just work harder. And that's kind of what resonated for me. Just work harder.
0: So you were happy to violate several child labor laws. <laughs> Completely <innocent. laughs> I mean, this, what is, was the this business is England. They, you know, yeah.
2: Kidnapping comes from, from the UK. Yeah. They sent kids here to work. They've been doing it a long well, time. Well, this
0: is the country that gave us Oliver Twist as Absolutely. well. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Please, sir. Yes, sir. Can I have some more? <laughs> One of
2: um, my favorite films of I asked, all time. I ask for more constantly.
0: <laughs> also at a young age, and, and what was the answer? I, I normally,
2: yeah, I mean, for my parents, yes, but everybody else, uh, every everybody else conceded. So if you badger them for long enough, or I would just find another way around, a no to get to a yes. Matthew is, will wear
1: you out, wear is it, you
0: down. Is it uh, over here? I imagine the, the accent works a charm in that regard. But over there, what did you learn about convincing people?
2: You know, I think people would just not necessarily ready for the barrage of inability to hear no like i i just i just don't hear it i don't want to hear it particularly if i if i want something or more importantly it's less about material things for me but more about what i think is just if it's not fair i have a, a terrible problem with it i just cannot let it go and it's always been like that, and I have no idea where it where it comes from because seemingly my parents or my siblings are not are not like are not like I am. But if it's if it doesn't feel just to me, it doesn't feel fair. And I've had such a interesting life. I I, I was brought up in uh, very working class, poor neighborhoods, but I I had mentors and I had people that showed me that there was something outside of my neighborhood. So I traveled very early. My parents packed me off on a plane at 12 to Israel by myself because I had some relatives there. My sister's husband's family lived in Israel, or live, live in Israel, um, as does my sister now. And I was just this kid from Stoke Newton running around the streets of Israel dancing for money by myself. And it was it was extremely liberating, but it, it was very different to anybody that grew up in my neighborhood. So it just gave me access or I had access, and I was able to see that there was an alternative to my neighborhood, um, and that made me even more curious.
0: You I feel like London has uh, breeds a certain type of person. Especially London in the seventies and eighties, I feel it breeds. There's this hustle there that you probably found later when you moved to New York um, and met your partner as well, who seems to be quite the hustler. Um, but uh, is that something that is uh, a, f- a function of the environment, or is it pounded into you at a young age?
2: I don't know if it's pounded. It's just the environment. There's y- you. You go work in a factory. Or you not literally, but you go do <laughs> right. you know you're a cab driver. Um, you work in the market, um, which I did for a long, for a long time growing up. Um, Borough Market, or I worked in many Petticoat Lane, Hoxton before Hoxton was, was trendy. Th- yes, that was a thing. Um, Roman them. Road. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked all over the place. I mean, that's what I did every day. Yeah, at an early age. And people people made a lot of money. And but that that was a particular type of person. You were a hustler in the market. You had a stall, you had clothes, but so did everybody else. Or well, you had jewellery or you had shoes. Um, a stall. Stall, yeah. Sorry. Thanks my, for, the, for the
0: Americanization translation, yes.
2: Um <laughs> and you stand out by being able to sell better um than the person next to you.
0: Yeah.
2: So that was a that was something that I picked up, and I liked. I liked the idea of being a salesman, and I think it's a very under-appreciated um, art. Um, it is, and that when you're not, and you know, when you're not educated, when you think about the tons of people, particularly in this country, that have made better lives for themselves, they're not necessarily the most educated people. Um, but they have a drive and a desire, and they're normally good salespeople. So that was kind of the beginning of...
0: Well, you recognize that. You you saw that at an early age. I understood that. This is actually what I'm good at, and I should go, I should should pick a vocation or I should pick a direction that emphasizes the skill that I have.
2: Yeah, but contradictory, uh, to my complicated nature, being particularly good at being a salesperson bothered me. Because I couldn't tell whether I was selling, and whether that was bad, or whether I was—I really believed in what I was doing, and that came at an early age too. And I'm full of those contradictions.
0: That those exists, types of contradictions that yeah. exist to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the stylist. Where did that come from? I mean, um, you sold clothes. Sold yeah, clothes. I mean,
2: that was that was an opportunity for me to get into the music business. Yeah. And I'd grown up loving, absolutely loving clothes. Um,
0: and loving the way bands wore them on stage, I'm guessing,
2: right? Yeah, I mean, bands was one thing. That just came a little later. For me, it was just, I mean, we were 11, 12 years old. And I think about this a lot now because I have a 13-year-old son who's just 13. And I would... With friends of mine, get on a boat at Calais, which is a port outside of London, to France, to buy sneakers. My parents would think I was at school, and I was in another country buying sneakers.
0: What, sorry, not Paris though, because it's quite. It a wasn't commute.
2: Paris. It was Calais. It was whatever the 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 clo- wherever the the boat would drop us off. Did I mean, we knew d- we knew have- nothing. We just knew. <sighs> That you could go somewhere else and buy sneakers, and jeans that they didn't sell in London, and yet the, the, the idea that we would have something that was different to people, to everybody else in our neighbourhood, was what it was about. <laughs> you <Yeah>. look stunned.
0: <laughs> I, I'm just I'm wrapping my head around how your parents didn't know that you were on a boat trip. I, I mean, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, it, it's it's it,
2: horrifying because if my son my son couldn't. Yeah. He, he can't leave the house without g- going to the corner shop without me knowing where he's going. So the idea that he would leave the country is just mind boggling <laughs> to me. I mean, I did all kinds of ridiculous things like that. Yeah. So I'm, f- you, I'm full of those.
0: So you love you love,
2: clothes, love fashion.
0: You loved fashion, and then you loved music. Yeah. What well, you Have did you have like a a tribe or a a genre or like a particular? I did. Direction? I mean, I
2: was a I was a reggae rude boy. I loved ska music. Reggae was very much, um, my community, my upbringing. Um, that was where the rebels were for me. The, the 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 West Indian rude boys that grew up in my neighbourhood. They were the they were the gangsters. They were the they had the sound systems. Um, they were you know they dressed really well. Farers, crocodile shoes, a Gabici. I mean they were What's killing. A Gabici is a, a, a an Italian brand that had a little suede collar and a, a little zip or buttons like and a what was the shirt. Rest of, what was the rest it's of it? Just the... knitted long sleeve. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's killing. Little Burberry hat, Burberry scarf. Of course. Yeah.
0: Gotta stay true to home.
2: Yeah. Um and they mix that up with West Indian culture. So if you look, I mean there are some really interesting documentaries about UK fashion at that time. Um, an idol of mine, a guy called Don Letts, who's a filmmaker and a musician, big audio dynamite. Um, he was also at sixteen years old the photographer for the clash. And he is he is the reason that reggae was part of punk rock culture because he would play his father's reggae records during the intervals or before the clash or after the clash, because they asked him if he would play. And What a, what a was...
0: wonderful mixing of sounds, yeah, by the way. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Which is which is how you know my initial, even before I knew what Afropunk was, it's kind of where the foundation of that lies for me. And it's not in its traditional punk rock roots that most people um, think it is, or... Even where Afropunk, the film is as literal about punk black punk rock, it's that's a moment for sure. Um, but as Don Lett said in a recent uh, uh, hang with Jocelyn and I, he said punk rock is not what it not about what it was, but what it can be. Uh-huh. And that's very 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 important to be. Kind of sums it up for me.
0: And also just the sense of it's an attitude that crosses genres absolutely crosses, and that's exactly what resonated with you yeah this how like the genre agnostic platform and music agnostic platform that you can mix the clash with reggae records you probably went to a bunch of notting hill
2: carnivals oh but when i i mean these Notting hill carnival is nice now um it can be a little dodgy but it, it was it was pretty gnarly when I was a kid, going to Notting Hill Carnival. Oh,
0: man, I was 2010, 2000. I, I feel it was even a bit stabby back then. It's <laughs> stabby. It, it got it. got a bit, it, Like definitely, when the sun <laughs> set, it got a bit stabby. Yeah, you were kind of very much off to the Made of L Tube station, yeah. and back in central London. If you were smart.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I I grew up in in that environment.
0: Uh, rich environment, the West Indian culture, the West Indian population in London. Uh, as he said, not only like sartorially but musically, gave so much to that country. Uh, you moved to New York when? How old were you? Uh,
2: it was two thousand, two thousand. In two thousand, yeah. I okay. did a video for a band that I was managing. So, a band. When I started styling, I started. I mean, I did a lot of stuff. Um, from Jamiroquai to this massive boy band called Boyzone and Westlife. Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: They were a very big deal. They were. Yeah. They were
2: actually Simon Cowell's um, bands. He was the A&R man for those and it's That's a tragedy yeah, yeah.
0: to know that that's how he started. Yep. Yeah. That's that's how, <laughs> you, that's you can how the actually, cancer spread. If, if
1: you <laughs> Absolutely. look, at, Matthew, ha- I have to say this. Matthew has this thing with double zips. Yeah. So you can see in a lot of his styling, and even today, like he'll wear a jacket and he'll zip it up to a point, and just have the top piece zipped. Okay. And if you look at a lot of the stuff that he's styled, it's amazing that the guys have like
0: they zip and on a zip. It's
1: like it's a signature thing.
2: It's a zip thing.
0: It's a zip thing. It's a, it's a zip thing. Don't say a word. It's a zip thing. It could
2: be buttons, too, just to throw you off. Whoa. Yep.
0: Would he ever do zip and buttons, though?
2: Mm, not really. <laughs> Why? No, just something about the
0: aesthetic that really concerns yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. But he it did, is his
1: aesthetic, though, yeah. that I think also helps to make Afropunk Afropunk. Because right. Because he's got right. such a, an amazing eye
0: yeah and and uh, which started very young but but then like the other thing is just there's so many influences and and you know the consistency of that vision and i think that's what we were talking about with you just now jocelyn the the idea of no i'm gonna i'm gonna do me and there's gonna be a place for me there's gonna be an audience for me there's gonna be a crew for me um was that always inherent in you or did you have a lot of self-doubt as well i
2: mean couldn't Consistently, it's only I've only actually the last couple of years started feeling a little more comfortable about the vision mm-hmm. um, as it spread globally. But particularly, I, I worked on the other side of the record company mm-hmm. I was, as a manager.
0: Y- you were taking her money.
2: I was trying to yeah. as much as possible. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But that was that was very very difficult yeah. for me, and I had a hard time. Um, as a manager dealing with record companies back in the day. Um, Why is that? um, Because they would say no a lot. And for me, I would... I was a stylist for some of these bands that sold a lot of records that were a boy band. It was like five white guys. And I managed five black kids. And I was in my 20s. And they were 14 and 16. And... The expectation to sell records and be successful, but without the financial input, was was complicated um, and very difficult. It made us more resourceful, and right. in the end, we were quite successful. Yeah, um, probably the, the the most successful kind of all black European band of that nature back in the day, a band called Damage. Uh-huh. I mean, it was wonderful for me because it took me around the world. Um, they were successful in Asia. And, we, you know, seven young, 20-something-year-olds running around Asia and Australia. Oh, and yeah. we came to the U.S. Yeah. and toured. And, you know, it was... it Was, was it your first uh,
0: connection with the United States? That was initially yeah. my first connection. I, yeah.
2: Actually, that's what brought me here to... Finish an album, record a video, which I did um, for a record called Ghetto Romance in Frank's in Brooklyn, which is weird because we live near there now. Wow. Um, So after that video, I liked, I just liked the vibe so much and wanted to be in a bigger world of music. Right. I wanted to get out of the UK. I felt like it stifled black music in the UK. And uh, I'd started to meet some really interesting people. Namely, a producer called Rashad Smith that had a production company called Tumbling Dice, who produced Ha for Buster, uh, He was puffy's first staff producer. Wow, funnily enough, Jocelyn was involved in the space jam soundtrack
0: and legendary film yeah legendary soundtrack
2: oh yeah, yeah, some millions of
0: records absolutely
1: and <laughs> yeah, it, it was um. What's the R. Kelly's? I believe Mm -hmm. I Can Fly was on that
0: soundtrack. (sighs) Yeah, we heard about that song. Yeah,
2: a little bit. Yeah. And Bashad had some records on there also. Um, So he's kind of, that was my impetus because I had nothing to do really. Um, And I followed him here.
0: Yeah, great.
2: And um, screw the
0: planning, right? Just go in. Yeah,
2: I mean, that was, I was like, okay, well, you guys. I'll start the American branch of the management company with the one artist. Right. And then I met Santi Gold and I started managing Santi, um, who had a punk band called Stift at the time, with a bunch of songwriters and producers. And that's what And this was all Germany,
0: and then you saw it, it, did you see Afropunk, the documentary
2: no. then? No, I met I was called by James Spooner, who's the, the who director. The director. Uh-huh. Um, and he asked me. She he could use a Santi record and we spoke about what this film was he was working on. And um, I ended up starting to manage him and then became his partner and then helped finish the film. But what it said to me at the time was I was looking after Doc McKenney. I don't know if you know who that is. I did the stero and did the first weekend oh, right. um, Okay. stuff. Great producer out of Toronto.
0: Like House of Balloons, like that weekend stuff. Yeah. That's amazing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, And he'd he been working with Santi and a young lady called Cree Summer, mm-hmm. who was mm-hmm. Freddie in a different world. She'd just done a record with Lenny Kravitz. So I'd, I'd, I'd started meeting all these alternative black kids that didn't want to do R&B and hip hop, um, that wanted to pick up guitars, wanted to be in punk bands. There was seemingly no home for them. And then this guy comes along with this film and it was obvious to me that that this was the home for these kids and it was more in line with the way that i looked at the world and what i was interested in and the kind of r&b and hip-hop stuff that i was doing
0: and they're refusing to be categorized categorized uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely yeah absolutely were they looking for community
2: um, yeah, I mean, the, the, our, uh, very simply, it was we believed that there were enough people that thought the way that we did that we could connect the dots. And back then, for Santi, if we could have sold 15,000 records, that would have made somebody put their hand up. Um, so we just wanted to be the platform. We wanted to enable artists that didn't want to subscribe to the monolith that A and R people, marketing people said that they were and that we wanted something And this different. was two thousand the gatekeepers. The
0: gatekeepers. Your your old career. Yeah, yeah. it was
1: like a, a big old gatekeeper.
0: Man, you must have loved switching to the other side and doing it with such vigor. You don't you don't <laughs> half step anything, do you? <laughs>
2: She came kicking and screaming. I came the- to
1: Aberpunc kicking
2: and screaming. No, <laughs> well, no, just the current role. What did she love By the way, she picked me up in the street. Did she? Yeah. Stop
0: lying. Shameless.
1: Stop
2: lying. <laughs> abuse of power.
0: I, I, I find that hard to believe, especially because it's actually true. You are the man who uh, spent his early years convincing people. To do things they weren't necessarily ready to do.
2: I know. I convinced her. I wore her down. He, she, he wore me down for a year.
0: Oh, a year? A year. A year of courtship.
1: I wouldn't even call it courtship. It was just sort she of... She didn't know what was coming. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> know what it was. She had no idea. It was, the beauty
0: is she probably still doesn't know. It was.
1: <laughs> he just kept showing up.
0: Yeah. I tidied yeah.
2: up her closet.
0: Yeah. You yeah. did? Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, he did. Matthew threw that, her it. off. A hidden talent. I, I actually thought Matthew was gay when I first met him. Uh, stylist. I know. Well-dressed. <laughs> English.
0: Yeah. Well-spoken. <laughs> articulate. You do what you Stereotypes do. are the worst, by the way. I this know, is exactly what you two are fighting against. All right? <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, the Africa, uh, Afro-punk movement was – I'm going to call it a movement and you can correct me. But it seems no, like it was a community to a movement. A movement. Okay. Yeah. It's a movement. It's that a was platform. The, that it's... was the um, and, it, and it was very specifically designed, or did you make, want to make sure that it wasn't very much defined as to what? Well, we,
2: it was- we, James and I had two different views, because the film was very specific, and right. the community at the time was born out of the film.
0: Right.
2: But what? where I found power, uh, and I remember this day, and I will do till the day I die, to make myself useful, I, we were doing film screenings and I said we should do events. Music, the film is all about music. We should have a physical interaction with human beings yep. and it'd be nice to have some of these bands in a space and we had a show, our first show at the Delancey Lounge in Manhattan downstairs.
0: What was the crowd like?
2: It was fucking brilliant. It was about 25 kids, and I remember, never been in a mosh pit, and I remember standing on the side, looking at these kids with just big grins on their faces, pushing each other around, and that was the light bulb moment.
0: Was it black? Was it white? Was it It mixed,
2: was it? It was was quite mixed. I mean, it was predominantly black, but it was Latin, it was... Queer, it was straight. Yeah. I mean, it was very diverse within the 25, 30 people that were there. Yeah, And we probably knew everybody was that was there at the time. But the energy and the smiles, and I remember looking, at, I'm British, so I'm inhibited. I'm a little anal retentive. So standing on the outside of this pit, like physically wanting to jump in, and feel this sense of freedom and that's what it was for me it was this sense of freedom that is so empowering um and i thought there and then if we can bottle this if we can give this to people um if we can make people feel like this even for a moment in this room we have something extremely powerful
1: I think you have to explain why that is so important because on the other side of things people were like don't step on my sneaker. Well that was
2: my that was my experience and again it's a very british you know I grew up around going to reggae dance clubs and if you stood on someone's shoes you could get stabbed and you you know you kept your distance. I'm I'm also I'm, I still today I'm very conscious of other people's space um, I'm very aware of people's space, I'm very aware of people and courteous to people. Um and it's just a manifestation of But that was childhood.
1: Also my upbringing in hip hop too. It's like you did not touch people really.
0: You didn't. So this was this was breaking <laughs> free of all I mean it basically oh. took that whole thing oh, yeah. Out yeah. And, and exploded yeah. it
2: in yeah. essence. Yeah, yeah, like you're the, very inhibited as a people of colour didn't color.
1: do that
0: hmm. ever.
2: Hmm. Really yeah we touch on the inside, so
0: why <laughs> so why do you think why did you what led you to believe that there was more people out there like this? I mean, you had twenty five folks there
2: because I'm not that smart, I suppose um, it wasn't about whether they really existed at the time. it was that if I felt the way that I do and that was liberating and freeing for me and I could see the the impact that it had on people in the room that that in itself was contagious and if you allow people to be free enough to explore their identities and their creative nature and Mm -hmm. community and you know why do people the festival has become a place a celebration for people and it it feels like one big community gathering and everybody feels exceptionally free and that is what the intention was from absolute day one. We've just magnified that.
0: What um, were they seeking refuge from?
2: From the outside world. I mean, from their families.
0: From their families. From, from society that expected them to be hip hop and R and B fans and nothing more. Yep. From from uh, hom- homophobes. From okay.
2: Absolutely, all of it. Yeah. From all the police.
0: It. From the police. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I um, mean,
2: you're you're you know young black kids leave the house and are expected to wear this shield of armor as if, you know, shit doesn't bother them in the same way it bothers everybody, right? And kids are shy and inhibited um, and not all tough guys or tough girls and you walk around with a, a burden and when you can shed that burden amongst people in a safe place that's magic
0: how, how both m- online and off I was gonna say how much contact did you have with this side of it um, you manage the cash uh, cash money crew uh, oh, you D'Angelo mean, now, at that time yeah like like when he first when you guys first met um, oh
1: I you know when I first met Matthew I I, I had heard about the film mm-hmm. with some friends who you know had talked about it um, but I knew nothing about afropunk I just knew that when I the first time that we had lunch this dude as I referred to him at the time was like, "Hey, I've got, I think at the time it was 350 black bands that had put up profiles on his site." I was like, "No fucking way."
0: That there were so many. No
1: way. There were bands? I would know about this, you know. I do A&R at the time I was working for um la reed running his music publishing company and i was like i would know this and he was like no you should really check it out and then he explained to me sort of where these bands came from and what the philosophy was and and how these kids came together and i was like hmm there's something here yeah there's something here and then Uh, from
0: from a what perspective from a
1: you know when I started seeing Afro- when I when I started seeing Afropunk through Matthew's eyes when you start when I started seeing the fashion and lifestyle sports and music and comedy and um, style all come together and I and and it clicked for me I was like wow okay this is this is bigger than anything I've ever been involved with and it's I've-
0: redefining the black experience redefining the black uh, for What's, people
1: of color in in general but right yeah i mean it it, it redefin- it is it is a a movement in in my mind when if when you have comedy and you have literature and you have you have style you have sports, you know you were talking uh, at the time and art visual visual art when all of that comes together um in in my mind, I was like, oh this is bigger this could be bigger than hip hop, you right, know
0: right. Like, right. Wow. There's a groundswell. Do you feel you you open like you basically offer a place for f- people to finally shed um, that that armor that you were talking about when they? When I hope they, so. Yeah. I mean, it, when it, they walk I mean, out, really hard. Yeah. To do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Seemingly, and as we, you know, people don't even realize how important it is to them until they're part of it. Yeah. Because yeah. folks recently in the UK, and we had a little bit of, of an issue without entry my coming home party didn't quite didn't quite manifest itself in the way that I wanted it to um and ultimately by the time we left the UK after the festival people were really 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 grateful um and it's needed you know what's wrong with making people feel good about themselves Right.
1: It's get, and also, it, it, it's interesting to be behind the scenes at the festivals, as an example. Um, when the artists come together, when they're not used to playing in front of art audiences that really look like them, and they come and they are so happy. It's like this euphoric, joyous, amazing. All that, all ex- that's
0: all that's crossing through my mind as you're saying this is Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> oh, Lenny I mean, Kravitz, he ran- Gary was that like, Gary
1: Clark Jr., Tyler, the Creator, Flying Lotus, Flying Lotus, Janelle. Yeah, right. Everybody. It's right? not mean, it's
2: not people, just him. P- particularly this year, artists have been the most vocal from the stage, and that's one of my things at the moment that I have about the business and the business of music and the way that the kids on the stage are getting further and further away from their community that they start with right um and that economically kids can't afford to be at six hundred dollar festivals and you know we don't show up in spaces we're not invested in the idea that multicultural spaces are better for us and our larger community so when you when you get a Tyler or a Flying Lotus stand on the stage and look out at the audience like wow I never see this I've I, I've never played in front of this many people of color it's both extremely gratifying but it's also disappointing at the same time okay that? I mean you well, I mean you question why would why is that why do we live why in a society why is that the case why do we live in a society that's so segregated in that way and how is that how is that
0: <laughs> very easy question to answer absolutely <laughs> not. no um
2: particularly at this moment yeah. but but you know it all of that compounds what has just happened yeah. right oh i <laughs> you're going <gonna burn laughs> to burn i was it just going to say
0: i knocked over a candle but it's a fake <laughs> candle with an electric light in it and i reacted as if it was going to set this beautiful tablecloth here on fire um the interesting thing is that Usually, with subcultures, they go deeper and deeper. Um, you've broadened, right? Um, we talked about Lenny Kravitz, talked about Lauren Hill. Um, you know, you've brought in artists Tyler, the Creator, Flying Lotus, you, you,
1: TV on the Radio, TV
0: on the Radio, right? Which I would associate probably with the early, my early impression of what Afro punk would have been, you know. But but now you're you're kind of broadening out. Why is that?
2: It's a it's challenging. I find extremely exciting. To challenge myself and our audience, whether they know it or not, push the boundaries. Like uh, that's what punk rock in spirit is to me. Yeah. If we if we all look the same, if we if it's not about the attitude, no matter what the genre of music is, yeah, then it's bullshit. Yeah,
0: but uh, yeah, but you lose members of the community that way too. Yeah, right? and you gain
2: members of the community. I mean, people people will always prefer. Some people will prefer smaller social gatherings they always prefer at the beginning i myself prefer to go to see music 250 300 person capacity room best experience for me and we'll continue to do smaller you know smaller festivals we just did a new incarnation of uh, an idea called carnival of consciousness in atlanta that's going to be designed to stay around three, three three to five thousand people, which is still sizable, but it's not forty thousand people like New York. Um but we're also gonna do, you know, a smaller punk rock festival and we'll do shows for twenty five and fifty people. Right,
0: right. I mean
2: now you can start serve, now you can start serving them, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean,
0: it's, absolutely. How do you transition from community to audience? How do you look do at that? Them. I'm looking at the A and R lady. <laughs>
1: You know, I, I mean, for me, this is a different thing. This is it, this is about community, and I don't know. Um, we haven't gotten that far because <laughs> right. it's still about the community. Yeah. Um, no private jets. Yeah.
0: No lavish expense accounts. No. So. Mm-hmm. No. But will, you want to keep it. I'll,
2: I'll, I'll take the private jet money yeah. and fly economy. We talk about this all the time. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, if you want to buy me a ticket.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, give me the money. I'll buy it. But I'll sit in the economy. I'm more than happy to get there at the same time as first class.
0: <laughs> right. Right. So it's it's make the most of what resources you have on hand, uh and and uh invest where it's smart. But you're growing this now. So what are your concerns as you're growing this? What do you see as the challenges as you grow this?
1: <laughs> managing staff. Yeah, that's managing people. Really, so managing staff beyond that's such the,
0: an beyond the HR problem, though that's the HR problem. That's the HR the problem is the biggest issue.
1: That's the biggest issue.
0: Because you're really going to find the audiences where you find them.
1: You know the audience is there. Yeah, and there, you know, if if you look in Brazil or you look on the continent or you you know if you reach out further into Europe, um, people are there in Canada you know yeah where and the, where are
2: the where are early early days in developing our audience it's extremely we're way more excited about the prospect than we are worried about the challenges i mean the challenges are always financial for us because we want to we want to do things at a high level um but we're also burdened by Understanding that our audience um, are perhaps at so, so certain social economic um, background, right. yeah. mm-hmm. so, and they're also
1: not used to paying for experiences on on a certain level versus things, right, right,
0: right. Uh, but so, but so how do you sell new. those experiences becomes the the question. Well, we're right? building
1: an audience for right. sure. Right. I mean, when you look at you know. <laughs> you talk to agents or you look at you know the business side of, of of what we do they have no idea how we do what we do
2: but we also i mean we invested in our audience yeah. uh, in our community for 10 years we had a free festival yeah. for 10 years yeah. yeah the only reason we charged is it was charge or go away right um and now in new york you know it's a 45 five dollar ticket yeah
0: yeah, which is cheaper than Coachella and pretty much everything else. I mean, there's
2: nothing that is yeah. whether Warby and Parker or festivals. Right, it's high quality, um, but you can't see our headliner for forty five dollars, let alone the other forty acts and DJs. Right, so it's extremely. Um, it's a dollar an act. <laughs> no, <laughs> is but it but really so at the end 45x $45 I mean,
0: acts $45? basically yeah. basically but That's we've also kind of
2: there's also a large percentage of that audience That's a soda
0: or it it used to be the price of a soda It's
1: not even so you can't even get a soda for a dollar What $1 can you $50? get for a dollar nowadays
0: I
2: don't even know C- bubblegum No but I you don't can buy so, fucking then. tacos when I when I see yeah. you guys love 99 cent food I'm like I don't understand why anybody wants to buy f- Actually I, I mean I understand it but I mean I, I don't want to you definitely.
0: Uh, I think even ninety nine cent stores. I've bought things that are like a dollar fifty. Yeah, and I go, <laughs> and I have a problem with it. I know, I like, <laughs> Which okay, is like, it's know. only a dollar fifty, but it's like, <laughs> sorry, but you, it does say ninety nine cents <laughs> <laughs> on the outside here. So, um, so as you grow it, um, as you, what, what are the, what do you hope to, what what's the message you you continue to hope to give to people? What's that? Is it a sense of empowerment? Is it a sense?
2: Absolutely, of- absolutely. I mean, see to see yourself in the best light, and to see that there are alternatives um, to the routes that are normal. Yeah, you know that that you can you can be courageous, and you can push the the boundaries, and you can create spaces. Yeah, and a lane for your for yourself and your business, if that's what you choose. Um, yeah, that's the part that people don't even talk about.
1: You know, we in, in Brooklyn, we have a, a, like a hundred black businesses that we support in the market. Like, that's really cool to me.
0: So, and on and the and we
1: and we celebrate excellence. That for me is, you know, what does that mean? The mission. What does celebrating excellence yeah. mean? I mean, you look at Lenny Kravitz on the stage, he's pretty excellent. <laughs> Okay. You know, got it. If you are a and young kid in, in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. from the products that are sold to the experience that you have, to the service, to you know the service that you are you're given at the festival, all of it, you know, I I I strive for it to be excellent.
0: From a business side, I mean, this is the the philosophical side. It turns. Well, it's the right. same.
2: We're social entrepreneurs, so yeah, it's. I don't think they have to be. Yeah. Mutually exclusive, Mutually exclusive. right? You right. Know, we we make decisions all the time about who we work with yeah. and um, and how and why, and sometimes we'll make a compromise, but because we have a a goal, yeah, and we think the goal, and that's often difficult because how much do we compromise and how much do we, um, <laughs> you know, how much do some of these things fit in with our ideals? Uh, yeah. No, we're yeah, we're, cha- I mean, we're challenged by that constantly.
0: Yeah, that's the problem. Uh, that's the twice, th- three times a day. <laughs> three times a day. And how do you react in those situations? How do you? How I do say you,
2: no, fuck them. Yeah. And Justin
0: says okay, goes to work,
2: and we
1: talk it out.
0: Talk it out. We do. Because you see, you see value in compromise as well, and sometimes.
1: Sometimes, I think yeah. you have to, you know, look at both sides of the story, and you. you it really depends on the goal. Yeah. You know, we have. We have lofty goals. Yeah. We have big goals.
0: Well, and I thought uh, you touched on it earlier. I think this idea of showing that there's also economic power here that's untapped, right? Oh, yeah. When you're talking about, you know, record labels way back when saying there's no money in this. You know, um, mm-hmm. people of color don't have the money to invest in these. They're focused on products, not experiences mm-hmm. with Afropunk now. Um, and it's sh- it's proving them wrong. Is that right? Proving
1: them wrong. It's the most radical act you can... You can perform, spending your dollars with your people.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you, you delight in proving people wrong. Yes, I do. (laughs) I
1: I delight in that. Yeah, I really do.
0: Yeah, it's the pedigree. You too. (laughs) Thank you so much for hanging out. Thank you. That was really fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was. So enjoyable. Uh, Went a little longer than an hour and was completely and utterly worth it. You can check out the Red Bulletin podcast on ACAST. You can check us out on iTunes and subscribe to us there. You can follow us on ACAST, but you can subscribe to us on iTunes. And please rate us. We would love to hear what you think about us. Uh, Go on the iTunes page uh, for the Red Bulletin podcast and and drop your thoughts, uh, whether it be, you know, finding a new host or something along like finding a new engineer maybe Um, you can also check us out at theredbulletin.com which is the host in the archive uh, not only for this podcast but also a place where you can get incredible uh, stories from the worlds of adventure and culture uh, told uh, by a video told with beautiful words and beautiful images I've been your host Andreas Georges special shout out this week to uh, our associate producer Unique Monique and Ryan Turbo. Uh, and of course uh, the saintly and indispensable T Rizza, our producer and first name James already shouted you out, so I'm not gonna give you any more love. That's it. I need a help That's it. From the horn section.
2: Is that all right? yeah. And that goes a little
1: something like this.